0: Hello and welcome back to Secondary Rules. This episode is the Canadian Supreme Court's Patriation Reference Edition. I'm Joshua Neal. And I'm Ryan Goss. We are brought to you, as always, by the ANU Law School. This is the fourth episode of our second season. Each episode this season, we are telling the story of a great landmark court decision from Australia or around the world pull it apart, talk it through, and think about its broader significance. And we are working our way around the world's jurisdictions. That's right. And uh, a big merci beaucoup to
1: all our listeners who've been in touch, giving us ratings and feedback over the last week. We've been hearing from listeners around the country and around the world. So if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend or share it with the law
0: student or lawyer, really anyone nearest and dearest to you. So Ryan, we have looked at uh, cases from the United States. The United Kingdom and even a European case, which you generously admit, <laughs> you generously accepted. <laughs> and this week we are traveling uh, uh, around the world, and we are visiting Canada. We are looking at. We, we will be looking at a Canadian case, but we must first apologize to our Quebecois listeners. We won't be doing this uh, podcast in English and French. <laughs> And and like and unlike last week's episode, we won't be drinking bottles of maple syrup. We should at this point, we should probably just issue a blanket apology to any <laughs> Canadian listeners for, for what is to follow. So why
1: Canada? Well, I think this this case, the repatriation reference decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, is Just a fascinating case for anyone interested in public law for the reasons that we'll we'll get to in thinking about constitutional conventions in thinking about the role of courts in a in a system like ours. But to begin with, I think it's the fact that it is a system like ours that is that is so interesting. Uh, It's a Canada is a a federal uh, constitutional system within. well, initially within the British Empire, as the Australian system was, um, it has a similar relationship with the UK to ours in Australia, though not identical, as, as we'll see. And you even see this in in the judgment, which we'll we'll put in the show notes. There are repeated references to Australia um, throughout the judgment, and when you look at Canadian constitutional textbooks on key points that we'll get to today, they often compare Australia and and the United States and other systems as well. But Australia, it comes through. Um, rereading this case for this for this week, more sh- more strikingly than I expected, and there's references to, for example, the sister Dominion Australia, which I thought you would like, <laughs> Joshua. Um, so there's a lot of similarities. It's a federal system with a constitution uh, different from ours, but with certain similarities, has over the last hundred and fifty few hundred years had a similar but different relationship with with Britain. Uh, and so there's, there's things to be learnt there and, and similarities. And the Canadians, even if we're not aware of it, the Canadians are looking to Australia as a comparator in this context.
0: Now, I've not been to Canada. Have you been I to Canada? I have not been to Canada. So na- neither of us have we been sh- to Canada. We, we, we plead, we plead <laughs> ignorance and apology. But I know many Canadians. Do you know many Canadians? I know a number of Canadians. I think that sort of counts. Yes, we'll be hearing from them, I imagine, after <laughs> this episode. So tell our tell, listeners more about just basic constitutional facts about Canada. How, do, do they- <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) This is what the listeners want. Do they they have states like us?
1: So they have um, uh, a federal system um, that the architecture of which was put into place in the 1860s, um, earlier than the Australian constitutional architecture. They have today ten provinces, which we can say are roughly equivalent to our states, not the same but roughly equivalent, and three territories to our six states and two uh, major territories. Um, They had um, similar constitutional landmarks to ours. So when you look through a Canadian constitutional textbook, you see landmarks and events that are very familiar to Australians. The Colonial Laws Validity Act, to conjure that horrible memory for many (laughs) first-year public law students or second-year public law students. Uh, The Statute of Westminster from the 1930s, you see these landmarks popping up that are very familiar to Australians. But you also see other other, uh, bits of constitutional history. So in 1867, there's the British North America Act, which has since been renamed, but which is the the, for want of a better term, the first constitution for Canada, not the Canada we know today, but for Canada, and that, in some respects, we could say roughly, is similar to our constitution that came into force in 1901, with some with some big differences. And the story of this case of the Patriation Reference is a story that's also familiar to Australians: an attempt to, over the 20th century, recognise that Canada was gradually becoming more and more independent, a sovereign state, not simply a dominion within the British Empire, but a sovereign independent state. And Australians will know that our version of that story culminated, at least to some extent, in the Australia Act of 1986. So before the Australia Act, there was the Canada Act. And the story of this case is was part of the broader story that led Canada to grapple with its independence uh, from Britain over the course of the 20th century.
0: So what did the Canadians want to do when this case went before the Canadian Supreme Court? What what were they trying to accomplish? Well, the the one of the fascinating aspects
1: of the British North America Act and Canada's constitutional arrangements which were developed and evolved over time as Australia's did was that they didn't have a formula for um, in the, in the text of the law for amending their constitutional arrangements. So instead of having a provision like our Section 128, which sets out the referendum requirement to amend the Australian Constitution, the Canadians needed to ask London, to ask the Westminster Parliament in London, the Imperial Parliament, to pass laws amending the Canadian Constitution.
0: They didn't have an amendment formula of their own. So why did they not have an amendment formula in the British North America Act? Well, I think the reading the constitutional
1: accounts in Canada, different answers at different points in their history. One is one of the major constitutional differences between Australia and Canada is the presence of Quebec and the presence of a large... Um, French-speaking community within Canada that had a different legal constitutional but certainly legal history at various points and that was um, distinct from other parts of Canada in terms of language and in terms of legal culture as well as other aspects of culture. So one of the reasons um, it was difficult to amend the constitution was the presence of Quebec and the complexities that Quebec brought. But also simply there was a desire at times to allow the Imperial Parliament to have a continued stay. There was a certain degree for some in Canada and for some in Australia as well, a certain comfort that came from having the Imperial Parliament sitting above it. And
0: I think, Joshua, you can probably relate to that (laughs) reassuring blanket of imperial (laughs) authority. Even, however, in Australia, even with the Section 128 procedure, before the passage of the Australia Acts, the Imperial Parliament could legislate to change the Australian Constitution by changing Section 128, right? Legally speaking, legally speaking, they could amend Section 128 unilaterally, the Imperial Parliament, and thereby uh, amend the Australian Constitution. I'm not so sure that after the Statute of
1: Westminster, that was as easy for them Re the, the the federal parliament, but certainly the powers of the UK parliament in with respect to the Australian states continued until the 1980s, and the power of the Privy Council in Australia continues um, at least in some form until the 1980s. So there are in Australia various links to the UK that that needed to be tied, you know, loose ends that need to be tied up in the 1980s, and Canada had loose ends as well. They were in many cases different loose ends, some similar that they needed to tie up.
0: Yeah. From my five minutes of reading about (laughs) Canadian constitutional history, my hypothesis uh, is that the one to make the constitution difficult to change and to make it difficult to change, they reserved the power. To the Imperial Parliament and thereby locking it for a very, very long time, right? Because now only the, the Imperial Parliament in London could change the Constitution. There's no local mechanisms for amendment of the Constitution. And which then led to the patriation reference case. Because when Pierre Trudeau wanted to patriate the Constitution, and patriation is a distinctly Canadian word.
1: Well, and I think when you read the Canadian textbooks, they say, well, we're very familiar with the word repatriate to bring something home. But the Canadian said, it was never out. We didn't have it at home. So we're not repatriating it. We're just patriating it in the first place. So they just made up this word. Yeah, it's a a very elegant
0: uh, neologism. Yeah, yeah, but it is still a Canadian made up term. Yeah, 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 okay. So they made up this term. But they, they were faced with a difficulty because the idea of not having an amendment provision built into the British North American Act, no local amendment pro, uh, procedure, is to precisely to make it almost impossible for the Constitution to be changed locally. All changes must come from the imperial center. And here is another value of having an imperial center. If you want to make things difficult <laughs> to, uh, to amend, you reserve it to a place far away, out of sight. And um, local uh, factions will find it really difficult yeah. to seize control of the constitution. Pesky democracy won't get
1: in the way uh, <laughs> of the of the distant uh, stymieing imperial bureaucrats in London. So so let's let's zoom in on this a little bit, Joshua. What we had then in the latter part of the twentieth century is lots of proposals floating around for amending Canada's constitutional arrangements. Partly the fact that there was no amending formula was itself a problem. There was no easy way for Canadians to amend their own constitutional arrangements, but there were others and there was a push to have a a federal and national charter of rights uh, entrenched in the constitution and various other things. The difficulty was how do you implement those changes, including the change to the amending formula when there was no amending formula to amend the constitution? What was the process you needed to go by to amend the way you amend the constitution when you weren't sure how to amend the constitution? <laughs> <laughs> so
0: I'm sure we've lost most of our listeners with that explanation. Do you want to correct the simple, me or the simple, me? But, but the, simple, you, the simple legal answer would yeah. be that the parliament that enacted that constitution or that piece of legislation, the constitution after all was a piece of legislation, Whoever enacted that can amend the same document. So the Imperial Parliament in the United Kingdom in enacted the British North America Act. They retained the power to repeal or amend that act,
1: right? Yeah. So so and and this brings us to the to the, the 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 challenge, the question in the patriation reference, in which various Canadian provinces challenged an attempt by the federal government of Canada. The federal government tried to ask or proposed to ask the British Parliament to set up this new constitutional arrangement. The federal government of Canada did not have a substantial degree of consent from the provinces. They hadn't signed off on this. And the provinces said, well, we should have a say. We should, as provincial governments in a federal system, have a say in whether or not our fundamental constitution is changed in such a serious way,
0: impatriated in this this particular way. But what the prime minister then proposed to do was to get the two houses of parliament to pass a resolution petitioning the Queen to pass an amendment to to the Queen in Parliament. Queen in Parliament, Parliament, sorry, Queen in Parliament. And we are now talking about the United Kingdom Parliament. (laughs) So the Canadian Parliament would pass a resolution to petition the Queen in Parliament, the British Parliament, to amend the British North America Act, which will bring in... Through the British North America Act, uh, uh, after, after its amendment, various new features like yep. an amendment f- uh, formula, Charter of Rights, Charter, Charter of, of Rights, things. and the provinces complained.
1: They said, "Hey, you're cutting us. <laughs> you're cutting us out of the picture." It's all very well and good for the federal parliament and the UK parliament to to team up and gang up on us and pass these reforms. What about us? We want, we want to say too. And that's familiar to us in Australia. The the Section 128 formula in Australia requires, among other things, four of the six states, not their parliaments, but four voters in four of the six states to approve a, an amendment to the constitution. It's a federal guarantee among other things. So you know Australians can understand the provincial parliament's feeling of being their FOMO, their fear of missing out on the on the constitutional amendment. But what what we got then was a tension between what was the legal answer to the question, could the UK parliament and the federal parliament team up in this way to to amend the constitution? And what was the provision in terms of constitutional conventions, whether there was a constitutional convention that had developed over 100 120 years? that the federal parliament should not ask the Brits to amend the constitution without some degree of agreement
0: from the provincial parliaments first. So when the patriation reference case went before the Canadian Supreme Court, they were reviewing the potential acts by the Canadian Parliament. They can't obviously review acts by the British Parliament, right? And neither did they claim to be uh, reviewing acts by the British Parliament. So the question before the Canadian Supreme Court was whether the Canadian Parliament could pass a resolution to petition the Queen in Parliament in the United Kingdom to amend the British North America Act without provincial support. So it is really about whether the parliament could pass a resolution following its own internal procedure. Yes, either the
1: parliament or, or, or perhaps the government of Canada proceeding with this, with this, making this request of the of the Brits. So we have this really fascinating judgment. It's it's fragmented into into different opinions and so on. But um, there is first the first question, which we might expect in any court case, and we might expect it to be the major uh, question, but. On the on the first question, it was dispatched, I think you'd agree, Joshua, reasonably quickly, which was by seven to two, the Supreme Court said, as a matter of law, looking at the law, that the government of Canada could proceed as a matter of law. There was no legal requirement for the Canadian federal government to secure consent in some way, shape, or form from the Canadian provinces before they asked the Brits to legislate. So that was the legal answer right. to the question. It was there was there was dissents, but it wasn't too controversial. It wasn't didn't occupy Know, the whole of the judgment or anything of the sort.
0: Yeah, and that w- was the straightforward part, right? Legally, yeah, they yeah. could do it. And now let's get to the more complicated part of it. Was there a convention that the federal government would consult pr- the provinces and gain provincial support before making that petition to the Queen? Yeah, that's right. So, and and this takes some getting our
1: heads around. It is the Supreme Court was asked. Whether there was a constitutional convention in, in the form that you're asking that whether in and they didn't specify the details they didn't get bogged down in the details but in some form was there a requirement um, that the Canadian Parliament Canadian government wouldn't request an amendment especially an amendment directly affecting federal provincial relationships which these ones certainly did without some degree of prior consultation and agreement with the provinces.
0: So m- let's step back a little and yeah. think about what are conventions. It it is different from constitutional law, right? What we have just said that legally, the Canadian federal government and the Canadian federal parliament could pass such a resolution asking the British parliament to amend the British North America Act. So what are these extra things that uh, a government might have to consider called conventions? So constitutional conventions are a
1: peculiar species of rule. And Joshua, your legal theory Um, experience can correct me, I'm sure in a minute, but when I explain them to, to law students or to, in conversation with people, constitutional convention is a peculiar species of rule. It is a non legal rule. It is not a rule that comes from a statute or the text of a constitution or the common law. It's not something like a a contract law rule that's evolved over hundreds of years. It is a peculiar species of rule, uh, Albert Dicey, the the godfather of so much of constitutional law in Britain and to a lesser extent Canada and Australia, said that constitutional law in the broad sense includes law and conventions of the constitution or constitutional morality, he sometimes referred to it as. So these are a peculiar species of rule and we can think of various examples, but one of them, a, a large number of these constitutional conventions in Australia and the UK and Canada revolve around what we call responsible government the obligation of a minister to answer questions in parliament, the obligation of a prime minister to resign if they lose the confidence of the lower house, indeed choosing who the prime minister is. The restrictions on how the governor general acts, all of these things are by and large in Australia and to very varying extents, Canada, the UK governed by constitutional convention. They're not there in the text of the Convention. We say to law students in Australia, you won't find a reference to the Prime Minister in the Constitution. Um, similar really similar language in the text of the judgment here about Canada, that Canadians would be surprised to find that important parts of the Constitution of Canada just aren't in the law of the Constitution at all. So where do we find them? Where do con- conventions live? So there are uh, you won't surprise you to, to learn there are books and articles where academics and lawyers try and argue about what is a constitutional convention and how we identify them. One of the leading accounts of that is by Ivor Jennings, writing in the middle part of the 20th century, and the his formula is what the Canadian Supreme Court picks up and runs with and uses as a way of trying to figure out if there is a constitutional convention here. And Joshua, you, I think we've had a, did we talk about this a few years ago? You were skeptical of this formula, but let's, <laughs> let's go through it. Jennings says there are three questions we have to ask. First, what are the precedents? And he means they're not precedents. Not common law precedents. Not common law precedents, not decisions of courts. And we'll come back to that in a sec. But what have people done in the past? So it involves, as in this judgment and in Australia and the UK, almost, you know painstaking historical analysis of what has happened in the past. Second, did the actors in those precedents in the past believe they were bound by a rule do they believe they're bound by rule? And thirdly, was there a good reason or a reason for the rule? So he sets out those three questions. Now, we, we, you pulled me up there on his language of precedence and saying it's not court precedents, mm-hmm. not common law precedence. One of the things that Dicey and many of these authors say is one of the defining features of a convention is you can't enforce them in court. They're not... They're not, you know, if someone breaches a convention, you can't get the cops to arrest them, you can't sue them, you can't drag them before a court and say, hey, they breached a convention, that this act should be invalidated. They are rules that are, by and large, enforced by political accountability, by political criticism, and that people follow. Well, because they follow them. And it, it, the analysis often doesn't go much deeper than that. People follow them because they're good chaps, to use the word of one British analysis, analyst. Um, people follow them because they've always followed them rather than because any court will enforce them. So when law students tend to learn about constitutional conventions in Australia, about the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975, for example, or about Scott Morrison's secret ministries in the 2020s, see season one for more on this list, <laughs> Um it's not about the courts. It's about political criticism, historical criticism, analysis of what happened. No one was brought before the courts in any of those cases. So this would be
0: political precedents as opposed to common law precedents, right? These are the political equivalent of what in common law thinking we might think of as presidential authority. These are political. Yeah, so the, the Canadian Supreme Court in this case painstakingly goes through every example
1: where the Canadian constitutional amendments were amend- uh, arrangements were amended over the previous decades. Looked at what the Prime Minister did, looked at what the Canadian Parliament did. There's some transcripts of what Prime Ministers said on the floor of the Canadian Parliament in the early part of the 19th century, trying to, 20th century, sorry, trying to figure out exactly what they were saying, what they did, who they said it to, the terms of letters and reports in the early 20th century. You know, it's really, it's historical, almost archival analysis of what went on, going with a fine tooth comb through those precedents.
0: Yeah, but what matters is not just what they did, but the mental state which accompanied their action, right? And then we come, it's at this point that we come to the second criterion in the three criteria test that Jennings gave us. Did they treat
1: the rule as as binding? And the... Um, I mean, that's that's. is that the one that's caused you difficulty in the past, T- determining, or you were sceptical of in the past, wh- whether how you determine whether an actor thought something was binding or, yeah. that, or that being a relevant consideration? That's well.
0: right. And, and the mental state element, right? How yeah. do we work out uh, the mental state of actors, especially when we need to aggregate their mental states? Because after all, political actors is not one person. In criminal law, when we look for mental state, we are looking for the mental state of one individual, the defendant, whereas In this context, you are trying to add up mental states of perhaps hundreds of different actors across different periods of history. How does one do that? Now, we do
1: do that in various points, right? Like we try and interpret what the intent or purpose, or maybe not intent, the purpose of a legislature might be or the purpose of the drafters of a constitution might have been. No doubt you might cavil with some of those uh, details as well. But what the court does and what Jennings encourages us to do is to look at what happened and try and infer from that whether or not they would they their actions were, you know, treating a rule as as being binding. Them. But
0: you know, politicians are professional liars, right? <laughs> That's the tool of their trade. So they may not often tell you the real reason in their in their mind for them adopting a particular course of action. Well, I don't think it's necessarily what they say. You can also infer
1: from. And the Canadian court goes through as methodically as possible, and the dissenters do this as well, by the way, looking at all these examples and trying to determine, not just from what they say, but what they do and the number of times on which they did ask for provincial consent or didn't ask for provincial consent and... and you know, look at the omissions as well as what were the occasions on which they did ask for consent, um, as a way of trying to infer whether or not they thought they were bound by rule and whether there's some
0: other explanation for what they were doing. Yeah, it still sounds like psychoanalysis <laughs> to me, but but in this case, the court concluded that there was precedent for seeking provincial consent, and that precedent was treated as binding by previous political actors. That's right. So we have then um, under the
1: Jennings criteria, we have a whole a whole string of precedents that the majority at least um, uh, thought reflected this this convention. We have a majority of the court saying that the rule they clearly treated the rule as binding, and a majority of the court saying there was a good reason for the rule, and the reason for the rule was that Canada was and had always been a federal system, and that allowing. Um, The federal balance in Canada, the relationship between the federal government and the provincial level governments to be changed, to be distorted, to be altered in any way without allowing some say to the provincial level governments would be inconsistent with the federal principle as they called it. And, and it's an attempt through convention perhaps to make an argument that we in Australia have through Section 128 and through our referendum requirement. The federal principle is why we have such a rigorous, one of the reasons why we have such a rigorous constitutional amendment process. So at
0: this stage of the judgment, the court has said that the federal parliament can make that resolution, pass that resolution to request the Queen in Parliament in the UK to amend the British North America Act unilaterally by law. By by law. law, As a matter of law. law. But there's a constitutional convention which required them to seek a substantial degree of provincial consent before proceeding. So at this point, that's the conclusion, that's the interim conclusion. But then the judgment went on to say that they could not enforce this convention. Why not? Well, that's, that's part
1: of the nature of constitutional conventions, is that they are, right from the time that Dicey's writing about them in the 1800s through to this judgment, the common wisdom, the conventional wisdom would be that courts do not enforce constitutional conventions. They are not legal rules to be enforced by the courts.
0: And they may conflict with legal rules.
1: Yeah, and the, and the Supreme Court has a fascinating analysis of the number of ways in which constitutional convention that we rely on so much in all of our systems to make our constitutions work
0: might be directly contrary to the text of the law. And in fact, in this case, it is conflicting, right? The law says federal parliament can do that. The convention says they can't do that without provincial consent. There is a direct conflict even in this case.
1: That's right. And the other great example they go through in some length was um, that in all of our systems, the um, on the text of the law, the governor general or the king or the queen can withhold their signature from a bill that has passed through both houses of parliament. And by law, they can withhold their signature. As a matter of convention, they must Definitely not withhold their signature. The king or the governor general must, must, must always sign a bill that's passed through both houses of parliament. Uh, and if they didn't, there would be a revolution, I think it's fair to say. The governor general wouldn't last the day in office. But there is a conflict there between what the letter of the law says and what the convention that we
0: rely so heavily on uh, says about our constitutional arrangements. And the court here concluded that they had to enforce the law, not the convention.
1: Yeah, so you have this... this um, remarkable, lengthy passage of judgment in which the Canadian Supreme Court authoritatively, persuasively, for many anyway, outlines that there is this constitutional convention, that it would be being breached by what the government's proposing to do, but that they can't do anything about it. Now, the prime minister at the time was uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, father of the current prime minister of Canada, and he later in his uh, autobiography said, summed up the court decisions as being that patriation was legal but not nice. And I think that there's something to that, that it was, that it was, um, legally possible, but it was, um, uh, not nice. And Canadians are well known for being nice people, lovely people. And, but to put it in the words of the Supreme court, there's this fascinating phrase in their judgment that says the government proceeding with this proposal would be unconstitutional in the conventional sense. And it's this wonderful sort of phrase that we get in in our system as well, and the, certainly the British system, a notion that something could be lawful but unconstitutional, which is a you know three word phrase that takes you could spend a whole semester unpacking with with a class of constitutional law students. So, after this judgment was handed down, what did the prime minister do? So, what that then triggers is uh, uh, the the political impact of the judgment was such as to. Uh, shake up the plans of the government considerably, and you get a series of conferences between um, provincial premiers, as we say, or premiers, as Canadians say, um, provincial level governments and the prime minister, ongoing discussion, negotiations, bartering really about who would give who what. It's important to say, going on in the background here in 1980, there'd been a referendum about about Quebec's future within Canada. So the politics of Quebec are floating around in the background, as well as other internal political issues, debates about the exact format of their charter of rights, which was going to go into this new constitution. So there was a lot of bartering and and bargaining of a sort that Australians know from the 1890s in Australia's case, and and perhaps to this day. Um, And there are some great stories and anecdotes there, Joshua. I know you were very excited. Listeners, there was an instance where the the premier of, um, You know what I'm The premier, The Premier of Quebec went back to stay at a different hotel.
0: than From the the other premiers? From the other
1: premiers, provincial premiers, and while he was staying in his other hotel, they teamed up in the kitchen that night and came up with a deal that surprised him and back and forth and all this
0: sort of... Why would he stay at a different hotel? I mean, he seems very antisocial, right? I mean, just because he spoke French, he had to stay in a different hotel. And I I don't think that's the reason. I don't
1: think that's the reason. Um, uh, But uh, depending on which version you read, this is referred to as the Night of the Long Knives or the Kitchen cabinet and various other uh, other terms.
0: But he was being antisocial to begin with, right? Why would anyone stay in a different hotel when they're at a the they, conference? <laughs> they had a
1: meeting without him and he's the one being antisocial. <laughs> um, so anyway, this 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 continues for some time. And then eventually in uh, uh, by 1982, you have the Canada Act, which is in some ways a model for the Australia Act that follows a few years later. This is passed by the Westminster Parliament. It renames the British North America Act as the Constitution Act 1867. You get a new Constitution Act and it establishes all sorts of new elements of the Canadian Constitution that are central to Canada to this day, the Charter of Rights, but also gives them for the first time uh, an amendment formula, a way to amend the Canadian Constitution that doesn't involve Britain. And it means from then onwards, as with the Australia Act did for Australia, from then onwards, uh, Canada is legally independent from the United Kingdom, the British Parliament uh, in, in reality can no longer legislate for Canada from that time on
0: and there was a, now a local way of amending the Constitution it, they filled a glaring gap in their previous uh version of their constitution so it became it moved from the British North America act to now being the the Canada act yeah and the Constitution the Constitution act so there
1: are various ways to amend the Canadian Constitution Um that make the Australian formula look quite simple and straightforward, Um, but what's called the general formula, the standard way to change the Canadian constitution, shall is that it it needs to be approved, an amendment needs to be approved by um, the, the federal parliament, the senate of the federal parliament, which is a weird body in and of itself, and then there needs to be a minimum number of those provincial legislatures, so not voters in the states as in Australia, but the parliaments of the provinces, and you need to have at least seven provinces approving the change, representing at least 50% of Canada's population. So it's called the 7 plus 50 rule, apparently. Um, And so what that means is you need larger provinces to approve it, but you also need a widespread of provinces to approve the change.
0: Or the larger provinces can just gang up uh, to meet this 50 plus 7. Well, but you still need. I mean, there's only
1: what have we got? We've only got ten, 10 provinces. provinces, so you still need seven of them. Right. So it's not unanimity. There are other. There are certain limited forms of amendment, for example, changing the role of the king, that would require unanimity, um, which is a much higher bar than we have in Australia. Well, at least in some respects. Um so, so this is their their equivalent of our Section 128 now. And when you open a Canadian constitutional textbook, as I did in preparation for this week, you can see, you know, they compared explicitly Section 128 of our formula and the US formula with their own formula and see the the you know sort of the, the pros and cons of each.
0: Yeah. Can we revisit the enforcement question? Yeah. Right yeah. So the court did say that they are not enforcing the convention, but the judgment did make a difference. Following the judgment, the political actors redoubled their effort to negotiate and to reach a kind of uh, agreement although not unanimous because the uh, Quebec Premier was busy sleeping in a different hotel right? But they did gain, the federal government did gain substantial provincial support for the resolution to go forward. So was is it fair to say that although they were not enforcing the convention legally, there was still some kind of enforcement just by virtue of them stating what the convention was? Yeah, well, and, and this is a great question because it's this, this Canadian case is
1: routinely cited in British constitutional law textbooks, Australian constitutional law textbooks, as an example, that courts will refuse to enforce conventions. Uh, And there are other older British cases that that agree with this. There are perhaps some more recent British cases that question it a little bit, but but in any case, you'll find frequently cited the patriation reference is authority for the proposition that courts won't enforce conventions. But more recently, people have been wondering about that for the reasons you you outlined, Joshua. We'll put a link in the show notes to an article by Ahmed, Albert and Perry. Uh, great, fascinating article about judges, courts and constitutional conventions. And in their terrific, thought-provoking article, uh, they say, well, let's think about what enforcement means. It might not be um, uh, legal enforcement in the way that judges and courts often enforce things. But as you say, when they're having an impact on events, when they are an authoritative body like the Supreme Court is declaring that there is a constitutional convention that to proceed contrary to it would be unconstitutional. We shouldn't be too blinkered or naive in about thinking about what counts as as enforcement. And the authors of that article say, you know, it's conventions are social rules; they're usually enforced by well, one of the ways they're enforced is through criticism. This was pretty loud, pretty prominent criticism from a pretty authoritative source. They also have another one of these great phrases that come out in this context. They say a declaration of of a court in this sort of scenario would be a form of non-legal enforcement, yet it would be a formal type of judicial enforcement, which probably is a a tongue twister of sorts that would take us a while to get our heads around. But it it reminds us to be a little bit more open-minded about what the court is doing in substance here to look at the politics, not just the law, I guess.
0: Yeah. And the ability of courts to apply political pressure on political actors. After all, if conventions are political precedents, the court can apply political pressure to enforce those precedents, albeit non-legal, uh, in a non-legal manner. Yeah, that's right. And it, and it reminds us that
1: in in all sorts of cases on all sorts of subjects, judges can be very aware of the way in which their, their their findings, their reasoning, even if it's not directly related to the the legal outcome in front of them, can have an impact on governments, on citizens, on. Corporations on anyone within a society.
0: Great. So let's conclude uh, there. Secondary Rules will be back next week and we'll be continuing our look at big cases with a case from Malaysia, the case of Indira Gandhi. Today's program was produced not less than 100 miles from Sydney by the ANU Law Marketing and Communications team. Our thanks to Tom Fearon and the ANU Law School. If you'd like to know more, don't forget to check out today's show notes. Our theme music is by Soul Shifters. That's it for now. We are Joshua Nior and Ryan Goss. Au revoir, Ryan. Au revoir, Joshua.